and welcome to another episode of the Gaming Moguls Podcast. The only podcast that doesn't even pretend to be colorblind friendly. I'm your host tonight, Mark Teske, along with my co-host, Jacob Klopfenstein. Jake, how you doing tonight? Always wonderful, my man. Um, did you know I'm actually, I've been tested as colorblind? I know, yet I've yet to see it actually affect you. Me neither. I don't actually know if I'm colorblind. I just think I'm really bad at those little number dot tests. And it was like, it was only like in third grade. It hasn't impacted me at any time except for multicolored tree lights. Hmm. I, I didn't get those. So you didn't I, realize it was a thing. Yeah, no, I just thought they were weird. I don't know. I guess it just didn't really make sense, but I don't know. It's very weird. It's, it's never impacted me, which is why that whole colorblind conversation, which clearly is an important thing for certain people. They can't see it just feels weird on me because I know there's a myriad of different types and different grade gradations of those types as well. So maybe it'll be more of a thing as I get older. I don't know. I would love to see a study done between colorblindness and board gamers because I swear 100% of the colorblind people I know are in my board game group. And it's it's way outside of the societal norm. Like 50% of the people I play games with are colorblind. I've never understood that. Yeah, super weird. It does run in my family, but my dad has it and my uncle doesn't, which is weird. And my uncle's kid, so my cousin, does have it. As a photographer, that would be uh, like career ending. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. But in the food science world, I work just fine. We got an action packed episode for the uh, listeners today, though. We do. This is a fun one. You know, every time we do a list based episode, it's always a big seller. Before we do that, let's start with what you played this week, because you played some cool stuff, man. Well, the neat part about the list of stuff that I played for the most part is stuff that you either introduced me to or, you know, very, very well. So we can still have an intelligent conversation about them. We can at least try. So both of us have to give a very public thank you to the one, the only, the boy's threat and the girl's pet, the legend himself, Mr. DZ, Dennis Zerwas, for hooking us up both up with copies of that German classic, Huldak Mau Mau. Yeah, big thank you to Dennis. All of a sudden it showed up. I was up in my cabin and my wife had to stay home because she was actually working this weekend and sent me a picture like, we got a package from Dennis. And I was like, okay, you can open it. And she was like, I have no idea what this is. I think you've got some like <laughs> German playing cards. And I was like, does it say Hildok Mau Mau on the front? And she said, it certainly does. So huge thank you to Dennis. It's a great game. And I, I think you actually got to play it already with your family, right? Oh, multiple times. Yeah, it's been a, it was kind of the game of the weekend. We pretty much, that's all we played all weekend long. It's a game that translates roughly into just sit in the corner and cry, which we think about it. That's, that's cold, man. <laughs> yeah, I think Mau Mau means cry or something. Something yeah, along those lines. Right. I literally looks in the English directions and it says like sit in the corner and cry. So I'm a huge fan of Fuel Doc Mau Mau, but I don't think that you are, Mark, because the first time that I actually played this game a handful of episodes ago, it must have been in the winter, so probably a while. We were playing Fuel Doc Mau Mau at a buddy con and you were, I think, trying to teach some like heavy-ish game at the table next to us. But well, all we would it, do is shout. Yeah, if heavily is just Biblios, which is not heavy, but <laughs> trying okay. to teach anything over the you guys yelling, you dark mau mau, was just a fool's errand. Right. And this was the game that kind of filled that, like, it's after midnight, we're tired, we don't really want to think, but we're going to use this game as a vehicle to laugh. And one of the funniest things that we enjoyed in that is saying Hildok Mau Mau in like the most might like have posh, been some adult beverages as well. Yeah, a lot of those um, in the most like posh Berliner accent, just trying to think like really <laughs> pretentious. And so we were saying that all the time. And it was absolutely hilarious. So what you're doing in Hildok Mau Mau is you are trying to play out cards in your hand, I think. 
And if you can't play on either one, either your partner's to your left or your right's pile, you can play them on yourself or something along those lines, but you don't want to have cards. And if you can't play in either, you have to like say heal duck, mau mau, and draw a whole bunch of cards. Is that right, Mark? What you actually, you do want cards. You want to have the most points in your pile that you can. The problem is if you can play on your neighbor's piles, you have to. So you're giving them points every time you play on their pile. But if you don't want to play on their pile, what you can do is you can flip your card over and play it as a gray onion on top of your pile, which acts as a wild for future things. Oh, and the trick is you have to match either the color or the number on either your neighbor's pile or your own. Right. So if you can't match your own and you do match one of your neighbors, you have to play there. But you can play it as a wild upside down as a gray card. Problem is, at the end of the game. You count how many gray cards you have and you knock out all cards of that value on there. So if you have six gray cards, then you take all the sixes out of your pile and don't count them. Right. So then it kind of becomes a card counting thing of how many grays you have and whether or not it's bad to play on your neighbor and kind of keeping track of all that stuff. Yes, because you're never allowed to look through your discard pile Not either. Never. And it's just a great little game. So huge thanks to Dennis. I have to play mine sometime. It was actually funny because I went up to a cabin weekend, which is totally when I would have played this game. It's like the perfect cabin game weekend. And it arrived on Saturday right when I'd already left. So Well, and you said one thing that was wildly incorrect, Jake. What was that? I don't not like this game. I love it. <laughs> this game oh. is fantastic. We had so much fun playing this over the weekend. My kids kept requesting it like before dinner. Can we play another game of Huldak Mau Mau? And the only reason I was I was joke annoyed with it that night because you guys kept yelling that out at the top of your lungs as I was trying to teach and play a more serious game. So I was merely annoyed that night by it. But when you described it to me, I'm like, yeah, I would absolutely love that game. So I was super happy when my copy from DC arrived. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. And this game has the greatest box insert thing in it of any game I've ever seen. That's just hilarious. Yeah, it has a napkin, just straight up a little tissue paper that is just a straight up tissue paper. It's not like branded some way. It's not like a card that's supposed to look like a piece of tissue paper. It's a tissue paper, like from a Kleenex. And somebody grabbed a Kleenex and just put it in the box in the factory. Yeah, it's absolutely (laughs) hilarious. But this game to me kind of feels similar to Stick Elm. Where it's a classic yep. game yep. that you totally can understand as a like Western Uno player, but just a little better. Not as rulesy, a little bit more fun, lighter, kind of more strategic. It, it's it's really good. It wasn't like played wrong. I, I don't know. I thought it was really cool. I wonder if there's the same kind of desire in like Germany to play like Uno, you know, like traditional Uno or something. Well, and I wonder too. You know, we always said Stick Elm really should be brought to the U.S. and now it has with Stickum. And uh, kind of wonder if Huldak Mau Mau will find its way to the U.S. Yeah, it's got to keep the name, though, because half the fun is saying Huldak Mau Mau. <laughs> I know they'll probably they'll probably rebrand it as like Onion Game in the Onion Game Cry Cry. Yeah. <laughs> cry over onions or something like that. Yeah, it's 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 funny. Actually, I've used the Huldak Mau Mau accent as my touch point for trying to do a German accent in the D&D group I'm playing with right now. I remember <laughs> oh, trying to no. do a PC with a German accent. It's like I'm thinking of myself like Huldak Mau Mau. I can talk like that. So anyway, um, super fun game. I got to get to the table sometime. It's real fun. Also, I don't think we gave it a gaming moguls rating. For we did not. Before. Yes. Is this anything but a 1A, Jake? No, it's easy as they come. It's like it's it's an activity. It's It's hardly even a game. It's super easy. I think it's pretty easy to get. I think you can buy it on game stores from Germany and they'll ship it to you relatively easily. We'll have to ask Dennis where he got it from. There are some decisions involved, like uh, when you're running short in the end of the game and you're trying to think, well, geez, can I put down another gray card or would I be better off giving somebody else points? You know, am I better giving somebody points or am I better potentially nuking some of my own additional cards out of there? I don't know. So there's a decision or two, but still it's somewhat random, somewhat card draw based and 
So we're giving this a 1A on the gaming mogul scale. Absolutely. On the other end of the things, we actually got to play a game of 1848 together. We played that online on Board 18, but we played it real time, which was kind of fun. In a perfect non-COVID-19 2020, Jake and I would have been at BidSumCon in Chicago last weekend, uh, just doubling down and going nuts on playing train games for a solid weekend. And we didn't get to do that. And we were a little... uh, little salty about it and decided we'd take matters into our own hands, meet up with some of the game friends we'd have met there and played a game of 18xx online with them. Yeah, it was awesome. So we played that. And the other reason I want to play 1848 is it's one of those games where I don't always know if we were using all the levers in the game. And I hadn't determined whether it was like 1832, where you just kind of don't really redeem shares from the company and reissue. And what I mean specifically is in 1848, there's a whole bunch of loans. And it seemed like all the times I played, somebody would invest pretty early into the bank and nobody would take any loans. And I played with a group that loves to yank lovers. And man, we ended the game due to loans, right? Because if you actually have shares in the uh, Bank of Australia and people take loans, your share price in the Bank of Australia goes up. So A, it's a really good hedge bet against you taking your own loans. And B, it is kind of a wasted investment if nobody decides to play loans with it. So we played with our friends, Ira and Eric, both of whom like to yank every lever that's available to them. And we knew that we knew that they would just go completely uh, bat wild on this one and take every loan possible if we did it. And we were not disappointed. Yeah, it was really fun. I'm really excited for GMT to actually give some hints about when this game's going to come out in real life because I know this is the next one on their thing. Um, it was actually released before the 1833 NE one, the 1846, but bigger version. So I'm excited to see what it's going to do. But the other kind of weird thing that I keep on having with this game is it seems like the map keeps on developing in a way that I don't really understand. It seems like always the Western Edge. Yeah. Kind of by like Adelaide and that stuff builds out. And then I know there's the B&O is for the black company in this, right? Which is on the far northeastern corner. West. Is it the eastern one? No, I think that's the one share one. Oh, you're right. It's the one share one. So the privates definitely drive some of the companies that for sure open. So the privates definitely drive you to. Or is it SAR? I can't remember. One of the ones that's in the the west is the B&O equivalent. And then there's the one share that's over in the east. But it seems like nobody ever starts in Sydney. And I've only played this game three or four times so far. But like no one ever starts in Sydney in that little cluster of cities down there. And it seems like that could be profitable, but that, again, didn't happen this time. And I got the Tasmania private, so I ended up starting VR, I believe, to try to get over into Tasmania a couple of times. But it's a really cool game. That was your second time playing it, right, Mark? Yeah, I was going to open one in Sydney come hell or high water. And then I ended up winning the private that started the company that's the one share up in the north, far northeast. Yep. And that went flying out the window. Yeah, completely. So also, I will say there are some pretty gnarly terrain costs right around Sydney as well. Yeah, and maybe it's one of those things where intrinsically you'll be competing with somebody if you both start there. So it's kind of like this weird nobody goes over there because if you go over there and somebody else goes over there, you're kind of both shooting yourself in the foot unless you're really going to cooperate on track lang. And that group of people certainly does not do that. So maybe we're just like kind of avoiding and everybody wants to have their own things to have a good four or five tile lays before they run into somebody else. Jake, next time we do this one, we're pre-gaming right now. We're going to run Sydney cooperatively. Let's do it. I think that would be a good, good thing. It'll be a cooperative. You just said that thing. out loud. I know. Damn it. We'll, 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 <laughs> we'll be the mafia, the train mafia down there. But it's a really cool game. Really think people should try this one. It doesn't seem to be talked about as much. And it's a double O game. And I think it's their best one of the ones that I've played. Yeah, um, I'm a big fan of this one. I'm really excited about this one being published so I can get a copy of it. And it's it's short. It's uh, There's a lot of different things to do. There's interesting decisions. It's a little weirder than some of the other ones, which but not I kind of like. It's like not 80 weird. Yes. Weird, yeah, yeah. 
but yeah, we that, that seems to be a good pocket for me with uh, amount of Chrome. It's kind of the same way with like 18 Max, where it's got enough things that only it does that feels different than other stuff, but not too much where it feels, I don't know, like 49 or something. That's just a completely different experience than other games. Yeah. Anyway, that's 1848. Um, how'd this game end up, Jake? Uh, I lost by a lot. I keep on doing this thing now in games where I uh, ask, where, where I, I'm at a crucial point, and instead of just doing the thing I think that would have me win the game, I'm trying to understand these games more, and so I'd make dumb decisions. And do you remember me saying that? I said, I normally should invest into the bank in this yeah, game, but instead, but I'm, I'm not going, going to start to. a third company for some unapparent reason. You actually were a little more specific than that. You said, objectively, you will lose if you don't <laughs> invest right now in the Bank of Australia. And I'm not going to. And I'm not going to. I kept on <laughs> testing. It's dumb. But I think Eric won. Is that yes, correct? Yes, he did. Yeah, yeah, by a lot. And shocker, Eric had massive investments in the Bank of Australia. Huge shocker. Who'd have thought? So I think it's got to be a rush to do that. And then it kind of is like a free capital thing. So anyway, we talked enough about 1848. It's a cool game. Hopefully we get our copies some point in time in the future in real life. And we can play And it hopefully again. can play it in real life. Speaking of kind of uh, big games that we've been wanting to play together for a long time. See another game on here that I'd love to play. Yeah, this is a game you taught me originally, and I that's actually the only other time I've played it since then. I've acquired a copy of it, and I have recently upgraded it. I'm talking about Antiquity by Splatter Spellen by Jeroen Druman and Yuris Versinga. This is one of the oldest Splatter games, correct, Jake? It's newer than Roads and Boats, but I think it's older than the rest of them. Yeah. While you're chatting about it, I'll look it up. The reason I ask this is I, I believe anecdotally that this game inspired Agricola, Caverna, Feast for Odin, that whole chain of stuff, because Uwe Rosenberg played it and thought it was amazing. And Correct. I've, I've seen that right up in the uh, at the gates of Luoyang. He said he really liked the way that this worked, sure. specifically being Antiquity, and wanted to build a game around it. So Antiquity came out in 2004. Okay, yeah. So definitely it's it's been out for a quite a long time. I've been dying to play it. I just got the plastic geek bits for it for the resources, which are which are so lovely. And this is a game that's probably a bridge too far to play in the near future with my family. So we pulled it out and played it last Wednesday night at our Wednesday night online game group with a group of people that love playing Uwe Rosenberg games. So I thought this would be a, a surefire hit. And Jake, it was. I would imagine it was a great surefire hit. The only question being he got a bit of confusion on the first turn because it's scary. It's this game is so open and non-procedural, but it all kind of feels like a euro. It just feels like a euro that hasn't been defined yet. You know, it's a little bit more sandboxy. Weirdly, though, it's it's really procedural, though. Like one of the things I'll say is one of the great strong points of this one is that player aid that literally spells out everything right in front of you. There's a very specific list of all the steps you go through during your turn. Yeah, they just they're, they're just not like subsetted as much as like modern euros are, if that makes sense. Like you can do yeah. the moving yes, around. They're very atomic order. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was very easy to teach and understand from that perspective. I know that there was some glazed eyes after the teach. I just kept assuring them that this is not a difficult game. Once you start playing it, just follow this list of stuff. It's super easy. But like you said, as soon as you hit that first turn and you actually had to start making decisions, there's a metric million of them. Because in the first turn, you can literally build whatever you want inside your city. And where do you start? And you don't have enough to do everything that you want to. So how do you prioritize? That was really, really challenging. A bit of background maybe we should jump into first. Antiquity is a civilization building game, basically is how I would describe it, where you're building buildings inside your town using kind of that Tetrisy, a feast for Odin mechanism. Hmm. Yeah, but way where before that. that. Wonder where he got that from. And then also you've got a hex map that is your your lands that you're settling. 
problem is, is you deplete all the lands by putting out pollution every time you use them. So the, the map keeps getting more and more constricted and harder to move around as the game goes on. It also has variable wind conditions in the way that Great Zimbabwe kind of does, where you have to pick to build a chapel at some point, and that chapel gives you a special power, but it also dictates what your wind condition is. So Correct. this is a game that just has a million different ways it can go. And as a new player, it's tough to figure out what you should do. Right. And well, that's what I love so much about it is the players define the pace of the game and kind of how they're going to win so much in this game. So there's so much considerations and you don't really know what you're getting into. You know, it could be like a quick somebody's going to race to get all the resources or build all the buildings or something along those lines. A relatively, I'm not going to say easy, but more straightforward win condition. And somebody else will go like crazy on the board trying to encircle everybody else. Yeah. Two of us ended up taking Santa Maria, which is the one where you have to get two win conditions, but you get everything as far as the power goes. And I don't know if that was a good choice the first game. Yeah, probably not. And that's maybe where this game kind of lacks, but it's also where it really shines is the confusion around that. And the fact that you kind of have to choose your own adventure on how you're going to win. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Ultimately, we finally had to call it due to lateness. We're probably entering the fourth act. I think at three, four rounds, a winner will probably be decided. But uh, this is one we need to pick back up and finish off. Absolutely. And I'd love to play this one in person because I haven't used my geek bits in a while. I was reminded as to how much I love this one. I've always had an it's complicated relationship with Splatter Spell, and I either love them or I hate them. And uh, this is absolutely in the love pile. Yeah, without a doubt. I could totally see you loving this one. It has so many things that I think Euro designers thought were great and gummed onto, which are things that you really like in these games. But it mm-hmm. doesn't have the Euro feel to me. You know, it feels completely different, but it's really the same, you know? It feels a little more like a 4X game. Absolutely. But it's just a Euro. Got a closing thought on this one, Jake. So. The setting on this game is between, it says right on the box that the dates are between like 1050 and 1648 or something like that. Okay. Why is this game called Antiquity, Jake? That makes no sense to me. There's no antiques in it. You're not looking for like, you know, King Tut's gold head. You're definitely not in the ancient world or the ancient times. We're not fighting the Egyptians. Yeah, I don't know. I'm into game themes sometimes, but a lot of the times I'm fine with just having it be extracted. I mean, abstracted, pardon me, not extracted, drinking too much coffee. And this one's kind of one of those ones where it's like, if you squint your eyes, it kind of makes sense, but not really. I wonder if this was a translation issue between Dutch and English. That's my assumption. And I know it's kind of supposed to seem like the first presentation was also supposed to seem like kind of are like a, what's it called? A museum person, like like, like a museum sure. person trying to like curate something. It kind of like had that kind of feel where you like pull out like a evidence or Equip, what were they called? Like the, well, it's all like folios and yeah, yeah, that that kind of looks. So maybe they were trying to do that. I don't know. All I know is the game's good and yeah, <laughs> it's fun. It's a fantastic game. I just realized about halfway through the game that the title was a head scratcher. Yeah, because maybe in the Dutch world, antiquity is a different time. It's not. It's not before Rome. So could be. We also have never given this one a gaming mogul score, even though I know we've talked about this one in the past. And uh, I'm just I'm gonna take a swipe at it. I would call it a three E. Yes. If you're playing with people that know where to find the rules on that reference chart, it's really easy. I waffled about maybe calling it a 4E, but ultimately because that reference sheet is so good that that automates an awful lot of the teaching and an awful lot of the uh, confusion on how to play. So that's why I downplayed it. It's probably a strong 3, but that's why I downplayed it to a 3 because... Most of the things that you do are spelled out very explicitly. Agreed. And it's kind of one of those things, too, where at least all the edge cases that I remember are pretty generous. 
So like, mm-hmm. there's not that weird thing where it's like this order must be followed specifically. Like, I think there's the phishing error that can be sometimes an issue where like the certain timing of how all that stuff works. But for the most part, it's pretty open and generous with the actions on how you interact with them. So there's not that confusion of being like, well, no, you have to do this first because that's phase 4.12 versus phase five or whatever, right? And furthermore, the game is actually designed to be mostly synchronous, which, man, that's a big plus, Jake. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. This game would be too much if it wasn't synchronous, you know? Yeah, they basically say straight out in the rule book, you should all do this part at the same time. You should all do this part at the same time. And if it ever matters, then you just go by turn order. And really, it doesn't start mattering till about halfway through the game when your little empires start bumping into each other. Yeah, completely. And that's just such a smart design thing. And it kind of feels more like play. And maybe this is too theoretical, but you know, you're just like a kid just digging around with your friends about stuff and you just kind of hand wave something if you're playing a video game or something along those lines or something like that. We don't need to take these games so seriously all the time. You know, there's a lot of games that could have this. Okay, why don't we all just take our first three turns? And now that we got kind of got our board state figured out, let's then play from that point on. It really speed up a lot of games. It really ultimately made it feel fresh, which is really funny to say about a game that was released in 2004. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm happy you like it. I This would be probably at the top of my pile of stuff to play when we get back together. Yep. Anytime, any place. This is one I would love to play any whenever. It was great. <laughs> Speaking of older games that still feel fresh, um, 1846 got patched into 18xx.games. And I've been playing that, which has been really fun. Toby's on fire these days, Jake. Oh, he's crushing it, dude. He is. It's just ridiculous what him and the team. I don't know the other folks that are involved in it. I probably should for how much I'm playing these games. But we're referring to 18xx.games. And I just saw a note about Patreon support for him. So yeah, I'm, I'm certainly going to do that right now, too. Yeah, because he's put in an amazing amount of effort and created a great product for something that he's really just done for fun. So, uh, you know, if there's anything that's deserving of support, that's it. Well, it seems like they're just importing titles at a level that's just ridiculous, you know, and it's so it's such an easy website to use compared to RR18XX. It just seems like every time I log in, it gets better. Well, I have not yet played a game on that yet, and uh, we are going to imminently start a game of 1846. So yeah, in the next couple of I'm looking forward to it. So with this one, I tried something different. It was a five-player game, and I lost PD, but I had a whole bunch of money. So I tried to do the investor strategy and not start a company in OR1. Um, I think my issue was, or SR1, pardon me. I think my issue was I started a company in SR2, and I should have waited a little bit longer. Really got more money back from my investment and invested more into those guys. I was just worried about one of them dumping a company on me. But at the same time, it's not that bad to have a company dumped on you in that game. So anyway, it was fun. I did not do well, but I tried something new and (laughs) it did not go well. Well, you have played that game enough times that it is probably time for you to start branching out and trying some of the newer things. Yeah, well, yeah. And I think our meta of our group is we all want to run companies really well. And so we all invest in ourselves. It becomes like a self-investing game. And if you actually invest in other people, when you they don't want you to, it can really hurt them. And so I was kind of trying to play that up to the nth degree by investing in them. I just didn't do it enough. I waffled and I was like, you know what? I should probably lay some track. And I should have just kept on going, not started a company. Would have been more fun. Jake, have you had a chance to listen to the wheel tapping podcast where they interviewed Thomas Lehman, the author of 1846? No, I actually don't really listen to podcasts anymore because I don't drive anywhere. It's a good point. I'd recommend that one. It was it was really amazing hearing Thomas Lehman talk about his design decisions in 1846 and why things are as they are and where they're at and what his intention to try. And I remember walking out of that podcast thinking, hmm, I got a list of about 10 things I want to try next time I play. Yeah, that guy's just ridiculous. All of his games really connect with me. And it seems like all of them are so considered, almost like play tested to the nth, nth, nth degree and just like super well balanced and all that stuff. And I really enjoy them. And seeing that kind of design ethos applied to an 18xx game 
Um, I'm a big fan of 1846. I think it's one of the few games I've given a 10 to. So huge fan. I've always liked it. I had a new respect for it after hearing the thought and the design decisions that were put behind it. Yeah, it's just, it's awesome. I, it's such a cool game. I, I I have to listen to it. I follow him on Board Game Geek and I always like whenever he slaps down some stupid comment on Board Game Geek. That's <laughs> part of my Schrodenfrude of uh, seeing the world burn and seeing people be mad. But he's he's just so smart, dude. He's He's figured it all out. Well, and he has such a broad portfolio of games that he's designed that he really kind of attracts a broad section of gaming society to him for making comments. Mm -hmm. That being said, 1846 is awesome. I cannot wait for 1833 NE. I'm just so excited. That'll be great. The rest of my stuff is quite a bit lighter than trains, Jake. (laughs) (laughs) They recently released Yokohama on BoardGameArena.com as a beta, and a couple of my friends asked if anybody wanted to play online, and being that Yokohama is one of my favorite of all games and Euros, I thought this would be a fun one to just jump in and try, and it was my first exposure to Board Game Arena as well. So interesting. Uh, We just wrapped up our game over the weekend, and it might have been the worst game of Yokohama I've ever played. (laughs) Why? So two things. Number one was, first off, I think I'm playing with very good players. Yeah, (laughs) that doesn't hurt. Second off, again, I kind of bring up the point about when you're playing some of these games that have rules engines built into them that just sort of do things online. It's hard to keep track of the game state in the same way that if you were actually playing it in person. You know, it's hard to keep track of what other people are doing. You're not looking at what contracts they have. You're not looking at what technology they have. Things just happen. You go away, then come back. It's your turn and things just happen again. It just seemed like every time I came back to try to make a move, somebody was sitting on a spot that I wanted to be in. I've almost started to say if we're playing a game sync, async on Slack, just do a log of what you do in the Slack thread. Because it's easier to keep track of that because it's going to be up anyways. And a lot of these games have that. Like you can click. Yeah, but like if you look at, into it, if you look at the Slack chat that you're already on. Right. Like, you know, the Yukata implementation of Pax Perfuriana. You can absolutely go in and see at great detail what everybody does. But yet it's so verbose, it's hard to actually cross-reference what they actually did. I don't yeah. know. It's hard it, to explain. It, it feels like I'm a layer beyond where I want the dialogue to be. Like I want the dialogue about the game to be in Slack because I can track everything. Because that's, to me, feels like a first order thing that I'm paying attention to. It's like equivalent to like announcing your turn when you're playing in person. If you say it on Slack, that's what I'm paying attention to. I might be on my phone or like getting a drink, but I can still hear what you said. But the second I'm at my table, I can pay attention, but I'm not always at the table. And to me, keeping like a running thing of what's going on in Slack makes it seem like I'm playing a game more. I I don't know. Maybe it's just preference or I'm lazy and don't want to click open that thing all the time. Ultimately, I think they did a good job in implementing it. It's, you know, there's a lot of exceptions and some cases and, you know, there's a lot going on in Yokohama. And the fact that they were able to implement that and make it work is pretty good. There's some UI things that could probably be cleaned up. Like there's some places where your workers or the president gets put over the top of useful information. Right. And you can't like move them out of the way. So you're like, wait a minute, what do I have to pay in order to plus (laughs) up on the on the church thing? Oh, somebody's cubes are sitting there instead. It's huge. How fast did the game go? I always find when I play with better players, too, it just goes really quickly. It becomes more of a race. It was an async game, and we probably knocked it out in four or five days, I would guess. Oh, I just meant like turns. Like how many things did you ship, for example? Oh, uh, yeah, the game definitely went quick. High score was in the 140s, which is about a normal high score in that game. I barely cracked 100. (laughs) I had like 103 or something like that. Yeah, it just I felt like I was I was I was three steps behind, but we, uh, we ran her back and playing a second game, and things are going much better this time. Well, it's great. I'm happy you're playing it. That's Yokohama on BoardGameArena.com. Probably more of a review of BoardGameArena's implementation than Yokohama itself, because we've talked about that ad nauseum in the past. <laughs> we certainly have. 
So I've only been playing Trains, but on top of all of the cool games that you played online, I think you also played some games with your family this week, right? We did. Uh, we somehow ended up having a Friday afternoon blue orange game festival at our house. <laughs> Didn't plan it that way, but started out that both my wife and I kind of said, you know what? It's kind of mid afternoon Friday. We're kind of done. Let's play some games. And my daughter said, can we play King Domino? Because really, we've been playing a lot of King Domino lately. So we went through and played King Domino. What else can you say about King Domino? I mean, it's simplicity is its strength. It's super simple to teach and there's always interesting decisions and you feel either smart or stupid, depending on how good you are at placing those tiles. It's a fantastic game. That led into, hey, wait a minute. Have you guys ever played Queen Domino? And it had been at least two years since I'd played it. Queen Domino really is King Domino with more. It's the gamer version of King Domino. It has special building power-ups that you can get. There are knights that give you income. You can use that income to buy buildings. There's a sixth land type that you can use. And it's a deeper version of an already winning formula. See, I will push back on that, but I'll wait for you to do your summary. Sure. A couple thoughts on it. It definitely felt like a different game. I mean, yes, the, the, the bones and the core are the same. Having a sixth land type makes it much, much, much tougher. There was no more of this, hey, I've now got a land mass of eight with five crowns on it. No, 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 no. A good land mass was three or four. So it's definitely tougher. And I think there's a great argument made for the simple, quick version. But there's also a argument to be made for a, hey, this felt like a real game, yet was still only an hour. Yeah, I had both. I was such a huge fan of King Domino. I decided to buy Queen Domino because I thought I'd like it. But to me, I felt the exact opposite. I felt the game really lacked and the simpleness was what really drove me to it. I didn't need powers or like a halfway economy and that stuff. I, did, I, did, I didn't need that in the game and ended up getting rid of the Queen Domino version. So I, I don't think it's better. I just definitely think the gem of King Domino is how quick it was. And by removing that and adding more on, it did not help gameplay. Yeah, it's definitely not an A-B comparison. They're different games. Yes, yeah. they have the same core, but ultimately they scratch different itches. Yeah, completely. Then after that, we rolled straight into the third blue-orange game title in my collection, Reiner Knizia's Blue Lagoon, which is a uh, area control type game that's fought over in two phases, where the first phase you can kind of go anywhere you want to and you have to establish a beachhead. Then a bit like the Brass series of games, you wipe the board and build out from what you already have and try to claim area dominance, as well as a bunch of other scoring things with collecting resources. Now, Jake, we played this one and I, I'm, I'm hard pressed to think of a bigger flop. Yeah. In a gameplay, uh, most of the people absolutely hated it. Yeah. I don't know if you heard me. I hissed when you said it. Yeah, it played out different than it did that night. It, like one of the one of your criticisms last time was that it, you'd kind of just sit and wait towards somebody who had a majority going towards someplace. They would just sit and wait towards placing that last piece. So it was pointless to even try chasing after it. What ended up happening this time is everybody spread out a little bit more. And it's one of those that you ended up with. Well, I could defend that place or I could make an offensive move over there and move in on that other area. And I found a lot of fun in trying to balance out the, wow, there's 17 things I could do. I don't know what the best one is here. And ultimately, I'm just going to have to go with one of them and sacrifice a few other things. And it actually ended up playing out really well. I just think it was one of those experiences where, not to be mean to you or anything, but it wasn't a your best know your audience kind of game night. For sure. It's really abstract. Kirk really doesn't like abstracts. I, I, I waffle. It depends on the abstract. I usually don't like multiple player abstracts. Because I feel like I'm not playing one person, I'm playing everybody. And it was just a little bit too abstract for the group for that point in time. And I think we had also wanted to play something else. So 
clearly there's some bias going into that evening on I'm going to. And I think the other lurking variable too is we played really poorly. So it probably wasn't the best example of how to play that game. I think the biggest factors there when we played the first time, it was the time of day. And it was the fact that people actually kind of wanted to play something else. Yes. I th- I think that's it. Because you say Kirk's not into abstract, yet he's Mr. Azul. He's Mr. What's that silly underwater game where you roll the dice and have to take all this stuff? Oh, that game's so bad. I don't know if it's <laughs> anymore. Lou, Lou, ah, what's the name of that one? Uh, Nova. What is it? Oh, crap. Noctiluca. 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 Thank there you. it is. That game's hard garbage. So there's a difference between like spatial abstracts and drafting abstracts. And I put one as puzzly, like I would call Azul puzzly. Okay, that's fair. Like functionally, you could release the Blue Island game under like the GIF line of games and it probably okay. makes sense. Right? I, I'll give you that. that. That's yeah, my yeah. difference there, you know? And I don't know if I'm going to like it. It's There's this weird thing in gaming where if a game doesn't captivate you the first play and you don't really want to, like we're not super reviewers and we try to play for fun. Do you just like buckle down and bear down and try to get that game played again? Or do you just kind of just say, you know what, I'm fine living my jaded life and knowing I kind of didn't like that game and it deserves another play, but there's enough fish in the sea. I don't need to force this game, you know? Yeah, I would like I would never pull it out and play it with you again, just knowing that there's a inherent bias against it and that there's probably better stuff we can do. So I'm glad I got a second play of it to find out that, no, I actually do enjoy this game in moderation and my family liked it. So, yeah, there you go. You know, it wasn't a waste of money and it's not a bad game. It's just that uh, whether you like it or not may depend very much on whether you like those kind of gift style abstracts. Generally, I don't like them, but this is cute enough and short enough that it was a fun experience. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess maybe we should keep that conversation for another day of games that you like, but maybe don't love. And it's just like, didn't get off to the right footing and you think you should like it, but you kind of just move on. You know, it's, it's weird. Cause I mean, these, this is functionally a leisure time activity. You know, I used to always yeah. like, there's nothing worse as a feeling I read a lot where you're like halfway through the book and you're like, I don't want to read this anymore. I was like that with like Dune, any book beyond like the first and a couple other ones that were a little more highfalutin than the kind of garbage that I usually read before I go to bed. And I just like didn't want to do it. And I finally realized maybe like a year ago, I don't need to read these books. I can just stop. Like it's no big deal. <laughs> the thing that's good is reading, bef- reading. It's not necessarily finishing these books. And maybe other people disagree with me, but I kind of feel like that applies to these games, you know, where it's like, yeah, I'm not going to go and like think this game is bad. I'm not going to like die on that hill. But at the same time, I'm going to waste any more time figuring it out. Probably not. Right. And also probably be an interesting conversation that other day. And how do you manage that time where you're at a game night and you're all taking your turn and somebody else hits you up with a game you just really don't want to play? Right. Do you take the bullet or do you honestly just go, you know what? Honestly, there's probably a game we could choose that we're going to have more fun as a group with. Agreed. I don't know. Agreed. So anyway, that is Blue Lagoon by Reiner Knizia and Blue Orange Games. I'm giving it a one C on the gaming mogul scale. Simple rules. It definitely punches above its weight. It might be a B, but I think you could overthink this one quite a bit in much the same way that you do with gift games. Absolutely. So one thing that's interesting about Blue Lagoon is there is islands on that game, right? There is. And a lot of them have resources, (laughs) but... Oh, Jake, you're the best in the business. (laughs) What if they were deserted and there were just (laughs) desert islands? Um, Our main topic this evening is talking about desert island games. We thought it'd be interesting because COVID, as we said a million times, this podcast is just an extension of marketized tastes. And so we're kind of talking about COVID and our tastes and all that stuff. And COVID definitely have an impact on what we've been playing, right? And what we've been playing is definitely impact what we like. So it kind of made us wonder what would be different about bringing games on a desert island. 
Yeah, and this actually popped out of our last episode. Our last episode, you mentioned Root, and you said, hmm, you know, I wouldn't consider it in my top 20 games, but it might be a Desert Island game for me, that if I had to only keep 20 games, that might be one of those that I'd actually keep. And that got me to thinking that, hmm, I wonder how many other games there are out there that are like that, that wouldn't be our favorite games, but would be games that we would choose over some of our favorite games if we were forced to narrow down to a arbitrarily small number. And for the purpose of this conversation, we have arbitrarily set that number to 15. Yes. And spoiler. Because why not? (laughs) Spoiler. It wasn't on my list, but it was on yours. And I was going to add it to mine after we had reviewed each other's lists. But I decided it being on yours was enough. So know that this list was made kind of not with each other, but after referencing each other's picks. So. If you have a game on there, I probably didn't do it because it doesn't make great radio to talk about all the same games 15 times in a row. For sure. Yeah. And I did the same. I mean, there are cases where I had to pick something that was on your list. I could not ignore it. I mean, there's a few of those that are such great picks that they would be on mine. I'm just electing to put those in the second half of my list that I don't talk about rather than having a whole bunch of, uh, oh, yeah, me too. And I do think it's fun to do like top 20 lists, not knowing what the other person's going to pick. But this, these are in no order. You know, this is just kind of the... If I were to start rebuilding my game collection, these are the games that I'd buy first. Yeah, for sure. These are not in any particular order. So the first one that we list is not our favorite game. Right. These are what would be in our arbitrarily small game closet. Yeah, if we're, if we're, if we're moving to Japan for like eight months right. or something, or like on a road trip or live in a car and we have to cut it down for whatever reason, figure it out. But this is kind of why. Having said that, some of these choices definitely do not fit in a reduced footprint. God, no. God, no, not at all. Um, And the other thing that's kind of applying here is I didn't specifically think of who I was and wasn't playing with this. You'll hear it later, but I do put an 18xx on this list. And I mean, that's definitely not going to be a game that I'm going to bring if I go on like a deployment to Japan for a year. You know, right. (laughs) (laughs) My, My odds of being able to find a group of people that are into that are pretty slim. So and I will say, too, that my particular choices were mostly based around utility. I really doubled down on games that I could get the most bang for buck on, as well as play with the largest variety of people. So if I were using a filter to try to pick the games out, I certainly favored maximum utility when choosing my games over games that I might like more, but might be much, much, much nichier or situational. I am pretty much the exact same. So you mind if I hit it off first? Let her rip. All right. So the first one I'm going to have here is the only flip and write that I actually have on the list. I'm going to do Metro X, including all of the expansions. So my version, not the game right version, um, which I did play. It was, it was fine. Side note. What I like about this game is it's fast, replayable and enjoyable. And it's also pretty good at one. I've played this game with a myriad of people ranging from people who aren't gamers all the way to like really, really, really heavy gamers. And it seems like people really enjoy it. It's not the best game in the world. It's kind of more of a time passing game. Maybe if you're at like a coffee shop or something, blowing out that kind of game It's an activity. And it's just really fun. I like it. To me, it scratches a lot of the same itches uh, like crossword puzzles or something along those lines. It's a puzzle for you to figure out. It's not super competitive. You can play it a lot. And it's something to do if you're playing by yourself. You know, you could just really go over and over and over again, trying to optimize your score, trying to figure out the deck and all that stuff for each one of the different maps. I really like it. That's Metro X, my first pick. That's a solid one. And for sure, every time we pull this out with even some of the more serious gamers we play with, there's a bunch of uh, gnashing of the teeth about the, oh, this one makes my brain hurt every time we play it. I'm so bad at this game. I'm so. Yeah. And I, th- I think this is my favorite filler. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's quick rules teach. It's uh, playable in just about any crowd. Great choice, Jake. 
Agreed. What's your first one there, bud? In no particular order. In no particular order. Well, I'm going to get rid of the thousand pound gorilla right off the bat because it seems pretty obvious. If I wanted, if I can only keep 15 and we're not really judging on space, how can you not take Gloomhaven, Jake? (laughs) I don't. 95 adventures in the main box, another 50 or so officially released additional adventures for it. It's got great depth of play. It's got great replayability. I mean, there's literally years of play in that box. Without a doubt. So if you've got a semi-static game group, that's one that you would be able to play for years and never get sick of. Also, much like you talked about with Metro X, it plays awesome at one player if you want to do that. Yeah, no, I mean, Gloomhaven, I think, is probably the best COVID family game, assuming that you're in your situation, specifically, Mark. If you have kids that like it, you can play with the family all the time. And that's just perfect. You know, just I always think about whenever we talk about Gloomhaven, about going back in time and like wishing that I had this when I was like 14 and had nothing but time because that's really what this game deserves because it just has so much in it. So much. I'm so thankful all these things didn't exist when I was in college. Yeah, we've got nothing done. No, for sure. I think it did exist. No, I no, I was out of college. I think it was right when I was <laughs> Yeah, Gloomhaven's a perfect choice. It's the best D&D replacement kind of thing. It's something that I, like you talked about, we have actually gotten more time to play this during the COVID times than we would have otherwise. And certainly this is the game that we would not have played as many times if we wouldn't have had these opportunities. So I've been having a little stress about this giant box of fun that I haven't really gave a fair shake to. And I'm super glad I'm getting a fair shake. Now, having said that, I think it'll be years before I'm interested in Frosthaven or Jaws of the Lion. Right. I mean, there's just so much. I might be interested in Jaws of the Line because I think it's a smaller version, right? It's the target version of that. It is. Yeah. And as I understand it, they've built in like a tutorial set of scenarios in there, too. So it's sort of self-teaching. And that is one thing is there is a bit to learn with before you can jump in and actually play Gloomhaven. So having it being a tutorial mode by itself is an upgrade. Yeah, maybe maybe that's something I could do with Anna, but. I don't know. We're we're kind of not done with COVID, but it certainly seems like we're uh, getting a little bit more back to normal. So I don't know. This would have been perfect to buy in like March. <laughs> yep, yep, for sure. But maybe by the time this is released, we can't go outside anymore. That is a great choice, Mark. Gloomhaven is awesome. My number two, again, in no particular order, is a bit of a cheating choice. I'm going to choose Tichu. First off and foremost, Teach is an amazing game. I love it. It's probably the most limited game that I have on here because it's specifically only really good, in my opinion, at four. I haven't tried many of the other variants, like the three player or the six player or anything like that. That's just not super interesting to me. But the the, the thing that made me 100% included on this list is it comes with a deck of cards, right? It's a deck of cards plus four special cards. So mm-hmm. through that, you also have every other game that includes cards. So I'm a big fan of that. But Teach is just such an amazing game on its own. I think it could absolutely stand up to any desert island type situation because you can play it forever. I mean, how often does your wife just sit on her iPad and play it, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, dozens and dozens of times. And this is a game that as a family, when we're sitting down just to play a card game, this is the one my kids virtually universally demand to play. That's probably their favorite card game. And it's a game that has good crossover potential with non-gamers. I mean, if you've got people that are used to playing Pitch 500, uh, Exactly. Those, you know, Pinochle or whatever else. This is a game that's going to cross over really well into that crowd. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's, I think, why I like it so much on top of the fact that it's a deck of cards. And that's something I'm going to say more often. Why are there not more designer games that can be played with a deck of cards plus six? I'd be so more willing to spend $15 on that knowing that I also have a deck of cards because now I don't have to bring a deck of cards somewhere. 
not that decks of cards are expensive or anything. I just, I, I like it. I like that being a design ethos, a multi-use kind of card thing. It certainly limits you down to playing a game that is, air quotes, a card game. But, you know, a vast number of these games, like you look at Arboretum, Arboretum, uh, The Crew. The Crew is essentially a card game plus a few extras. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the same thing I've heard for Dragon Castle, that it's really close to like a Mahjong tile set. Like it's only like 20 or 30 short. I would have absolutely bought an expansion or paid more or something to be able to get oh, a full for Mahjong set out of that. Sure. Along those lines. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> don't check me. I remember reading something about it on Reddit or something. But, in, you know, there's something to be said about these just being kind of normal decks of cards. And if nothing else, man, it really lowers that barrier of entry. If it looks like a playing card, even if it's a non-understandable suit, you know, it's the Four of Swords, that definitely makes it feel like something they already sort of understand. Agreed. You, you know what's in the deck. You don't have to say, okay, there's one through eight of every one of these suits. Oh, anyway, right. I'll get off my high horse now. My rant soapbox. That was Teach You, my number two. Great choice. That is on my top 15 as well. My next choice is going to be kind of another cheater choice. It's a game that is almost, in fact, I would call it a system game. We referenced it in our system game episode. It's a game that has a huge ecosystem with tons of maps. It's mini games in one. I'm, I'm choosing Power Grid to be on my desert island list. For First off, that reason is that there's boatloads of replayability. It's a classic game that's withstood the test of time. It still has a massive following, despite the fact it's been out for at least 10 years. And I think the biggest one that keeps it fresh is that it's a player-driven economy with really, really tense auctions that can win and lose you the game, depending on how you do at those auctions. So you've got kind of everything in it and all the games we like. We've got tile laying, you've got hard decisions, you've got a player-driven economy, you've got auctions, you've got resources to spend and to build things. It, it sort of has everything in a box. Well, it's not just a pricing thing too, right? Because I've, I've only yeah. once, but it's a timing auction situation. I don't think we like as much where it's just all pricing. We yes. really like timing auctions where you're the one that can afford this at this point in time, right? So it's a timing thing too. Well, and more so, it's it's deeper than that. The auction actually determines turn orders. So turn order is super important in this game. And that's part of what's at stake when you're out there buying stuff and auctioning things. Yeah, absolutely. This is probably the game that I'd like to play the most, and I think I would like, but I've only played once. That is somewhat surprising me because this seems so square in your wheelhouse that uh, <laughs> I'm surprised you like like Age of Steam. I think this will quickly rocket to one of your favorites. Agreed. Just bring it out more. Maybe we play whenever games in person happen. This would be top of the list of games to play. I think our top of the list is getting a little too big at this point in time. I do think it often falls into the always the bridesmaid, not a new game category. Like yeah. I bring it a lot and it always just kind of gets the yeah power grid. It's always been around. It'll always be there. We can do it later. I think you can do it by saying, hey, this is a different map. And I think that'll be enough new for a lot of the people like new stuff. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that angle. Absolutely. So that's power grid. Great choice. My number two is kind of also a cheater choice or my number three. Pardon me. Um, it's another systems game, but this is just it'd be on here even if it only had one map. I'm speaking of Age of Steam. I love the everything this game has to offer as a base game, just on the Rust Belt map. It's really tight, really controlled, super about timing, really tight fiscally. You can explode, you can go out of the game. I love how it doesn't handhold. I love everything about this game. And then on top of that, there's a million maps, right? And so if I just bring two boxes, I have at least like 12 different experiences, excluding replaying maps. And so this game just ends up being this perfect time sink if you really want to go into a group that only plays this game. You could get so much bang for your buck out of this game. 
Yeah. And it's a game that makes me feel dumb every time I play it and feel like I could play it for years and never master it. You could absolutely swip swap Power Grid and Age of Steam on my list and I'd be just as happy. Yeah, absolutely. I I think a lot of these games will be things that we would have on each other's. I I wouldn't definitely say Power Grid on yours, but I've only played it once. So, yep. Age of Steam. That's an awesome choice. I want to be on your island. There it is. All right. My number three on my list is a game that I could not not include. I had to include it. It's my favorite game. Right. Uh, I'm talking about Brass Birmingham. This is as of my list last fall was number one on my list overall. I haven't braided things recently, so I don't know if it's still there, but it's got to be really close to the top. I have to admit I've been as of late trending towards Lancashire as being my favorite brass game. But for the purposes of this list, I ended up including Birmingham because I think it has greater mass appeal to a wider variety of players due to its rounder edges. Yes. However, I do think that maybe the meanness in Lancashire reacts better to repeated play. So maybe actually Lancashire would be the best version for this because you don't need to pull people in as like kind of a more shallower experience. You want the big experience, right? Yeah. Yeah. Those thoughts crossed my mind. I went back and forth on these two and I don't think you could be wrong with either one of those choices, Birmingham or Lancashire. So I should probably have just said brass. You know, I'm going to try to cram them both in one box. Fill it in. Yeah, absolutely. So that's my number three choice, Brass Birmingham. All right. My number four, the only Euro that really made my list, I think it's a little bit because you have a lot of Euros on yours that I also agree with. So I'm going to speak of Agricola. I barely edged out Caverna for this thing, but the main reason that took it over the fact was all the different decks. It's going to be really replayable and the fact that you're really trying to optimize each one of your hands that you've been dealt really makes it seem like you could play this game forever compared to developing kind of a local meta involving the overhanging tile or whatever. So it's just one of my favorite heroes. It's pretty fast, super replayable. You hear about people playing online thousands and thousands of times and just the different concepts apparent in this game would be really fun. You know, point ceilings, different things you don't want to invest in too much because you can only get so much ROI on it and all that stuff. You could really, really grind out Agricola and Maybe if you're on a desert island, it's good to have uh, some farming experience. You know, you can use that <laughs> as a guide on how to uh, figure out if you've got to plant vegetables or turnips or whatever the hell they are. They have different types of grass in the different fields. So You look at the hundreds of cards that are out there for that. And that, and it's really the cards that drive the experience with Agricola and your ability to draft stuff that works together, which defines how good of an experience you have with being able to manage the rest of your engine to fulfill those demands. And just the sheer number of combinations assures that you could never play this game out. And frankly, Jake, the only reason it's not on my list is that it's on yours. And (laughs) (laughs) we didn't need to talk about it twice. So, yes, Agricola is a absolute component of the bespoke desert island closet everywhere. Yeah, and I think that might be the one, if I were to restart my collection, it might be one of the first games I buy. Because it's a it's a Euro game, right? It's just, it's going to be the Euro game. And I think there'd be something interesting to say about not having so many Euro games. Only yep. having one. And I think selecting down to one Euro game, Agricola would be a really fun experience. I do wonder sometimes, had that have been our exposure to Uwe Rosenberg games rather than Caverna, how different our view of Euro games would have been. Right. Completely. I, I wonder if this would taint the fruit of all the point salady, everything's good, but this is a little bit better. Okay, I guess I won at the end, you know? It's sad we took so long to get there, but I'm glad we arrived. Absolutely, my man. I still haven't played my copy. Someday I will. Oof. I actually was talking and my, my daughter was asking me what was on, going to be on my list. And she was just confused why I didn't pick either Caverna or A Feast for Odin. And I said, mm, Agricola's got more play in it. And she said, well, but we've never played it. I went, hmm, 
Yeah, we got to fix that. There it is. Great choice, Jake. We're going to take a little different direction away from the Euro here. I needed to have something on my list that was a pure auction game because I love me some auctions and something that is only, I mean, there are auctions in Power Grid, but I needed something that was really just an auction game. And so if I look at the games in my collection that were in that family, you got games like Estates, you've got Modern Art, you've got Container, all would have been good choices. Ultimately, Jake, I went with Ra by Reiner Knizia. And this one would 100% be on my list, except for the fact that I can't find the version I want for a reasonable price. I really want the Everplay version. And I think one of either 2005 or 2006 is better. Yep. But it's such a game, man. It's such, it's, this is top of my list. And the reason why I'm cutting you off is if any listeners have a copy or know where to get one, please tell me, please. (laughs) Yeah. I'm so happy I have a copy of this one. It's neat. So the things that push this above some of the other auction games in there for me was the fact that the auctions are good, but they're also limited. You can't just bid whatever you want to, and you, you're you limited by the tiles and you, that you have to bid, and you kind of have to manage the spending of those things. And meanwhile, set yourself up for what you're going to be able to bid with in the next round. And that's that's a twist I don't think I've seen in any other game. And it makes it so much more approachable from all varieties of game players. You're totally right. You couldn't be more right here. Like this would be 100% on mine. I think it's the best pure auction game for the vast amount of people, but also super replayable. Ultimately, the what you're trying to do is very understandable, too. It's not just a trying to develop an economy or get the most money or something like that, like you are with modern art, which seems a little more abstract. It's literally I'm trying to collect sets. That's the, you know, oh, I really need that piece. I'm missing that piece. I need that piece. That's very, very easy to parse for anybody playing it. Yet it's unbelievably hard to execute on successfully. And I think at a certain point in time with experienced players, this would be like a filler game. Yeah, yeah, it would go very fast. Once everybody knows how to play it, you could just pull it out and slam it through. I agree with that one. It is more or less a filler game. And if you play it like the iPad version of it, that's how it plays out. Absolutely. Well, Raza, great, great version. And if you know to get the Uber play version, I don't know what year you have, Mark, but it's the good one. I couldn't even tell you. But it's the one I like. Yeah. (laughs) Please reach out. I'd love to buy it. Awesome. What's your next choice, Jake? My number five choice is another cheater one. Um, It's the 18xx inclusion on here. I'm going to choose 1830, assuming I can have the 1830 on a different maps maps. So, for example, all all of the different winsome ones, for example. If I could have all those, I think 1830 would be the best choice. I think 1830 is an amazing game and it might be one of the best ones, but I don't like it as much as other ones. But assuming that I have all the variety, I think it's the right choice. If I can't have specifically all the different maps, I'd probably choose 1846. I love how replayable it is. I love all the different strategies, all the timing on it. I love the length of it. I just, there's very few things I don't love about 1846. Yeah, I don't need to speak any more about 18xx games, but I just need one out there. They're my favorite games. Got to have one. Yeah, and as just a bit of background, not so much anymore, but in the early days of 18xx, because there were so many copies of 1830 in the world, there were a lot of games that were created that specifically don't include any tractile pieces. They have a map and they have some rules and some uh, stock shares, and they basically just say, use the 1830 tractiles with this one. So By having a copy of 1830, you can very easily make it into a pile of different games just by reusing the tiles. Yeah, so that'd be my choice for sure. But assuming I can't have that, I mean, 1817 could maybe be on the list too. But I didn't want to do something that was that long. I don't know why, but I I assumed in my Desert Island it wouldn't be able to do like six-hour games very often. Uh, That's an awesome choice. I 
I'm not going to talk about it, but I ended up including 1849 on my list just simply due to the fact that's my favorite one. And I always seem to have a great play of it. See, I would have thought you would have done 22 because that's a system one. There's a handful of other different. I thought very serious. Yeah, I thought very seriously about that one. If nothing else, to go back and forth as a compliment to the fact that you took a financial game, I wanted to take a more operational game. That'll do. And maybe I would take that one in hindsight. It's just that the length of uh, 1822 is awfully limiting sometimes. Yeah, completely. Completely. So that's my number five choice. What's yours, Mark? My number five is also something that has become a system game over the past year for sure. I'm looking at Later Games' masterpiece called Root, designed by Cole Worley, published by Later Games. This is a game that just continues to get better and better and better every year and with every release. Uh, Root is a the cutest war game out there that most people that play it don't even realize it's a war game because the, the creatures are so cute and what they do is so interesting. But underneath that is actually a very complex game where repeated plays would definitely cause emergent play to happen, where things happen that never happened before. The skill level would continue to increase. And if that ever started to get old, all you got to do is mix up the factions. And now you got a brand new challenge ahead of you. And with the number of factions and combinations out there, it's very quickly becoming something I don't think you could possibly play out. Yeah, completely. I would have included this one had I not done it. The only issue is if we are taking this as the truth of being on a desert island, how would you get all of the updates to this game? You know, I mean, what version are you going to be playing? Oh, I'm I'm assuming I'm going out there today with all the updates oh, I already have. Because I think there's another expansion coming out with four more factions. Or something. <laughs> there is. If, you know, even where it's sitting at right now with eight factions or something like that, definitely would scratch itches for a very long time into the future. Wonderful. Root is a great choice, man. That's my number five choice, Root, by Later Games. My number six is kind of a the, the, the lightest choice probably outside of Metro X on my thing. I don't know why. I can't quite verbalize why I like this game so much, but I just really played a lot. <laughs> um, I'm speaking of Azul. Azul is kind of my light filler if you want to be introduced to gaming, but it's not going to take too long. There's a lot of semi-simple ideas for you to figure out in the game. I just I just love it. I play this game all the time with experienced gamers outside. You know, it's just a game that I enjoy doing. I think everybody enjoys it. And to me, this is the kind of games I try to introduce people to modern gaming with, you know, not that bird wingspan thing with a million and a half rules, just something light, attractive to the eye, easy to figure out what you're doing on your turn and then a kind of fun scoring mechanism. Yeah, this is absolutely my go to if we're with a group of people that aren't gamers but we want to play something more than a filler or party game, Azul is 100% my go-to, and it has yet to fail me. Agreed. The only confusing part is the whole color thing coming over, and you can only have one color per each row. But if you can just stress that and kind of watch like a hawk to make sure they don't make any bad moves involving that. Yep, and scoring gets a little wacky too. And, you know, giving some good examples on how you score it out has been very helpful as well. Yeah, but that being said, I still, this game still has some luster on it for me. You know, I've played this game a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Like, I played it a lot. And this is, I don't always track the gameplays of this game because sometimes I'm just sitting at my cabin on the dock. Uh, yeah, I think it's a virtually perfect abstract. It's got everything. It's easy to teach. It's got great deep strategy. It's got a lot of interactivity with the drafting of the pieces. And on top of that, it's dead up beautiful. Yes, a puzzly abstract is, I think, the term that we coined for it. Correct. Yep. Yep. There it yep. is. So that is on my list as well. Just not one that I'm going to talk about because you already did. There you go. What's your next one, Mark? I needed something in the puzzly Euro slot as well. And I actually have a lot of games in this category, I realized as I started looking at them. 
And um, I think I had to go with the one that just plain makes me feel good, that I enjoy playing every time I play it, and also has had an additional amount of content added to it so that I can keep it fresh and keep moving things differently. And that is the game Orleans by Reiner Stockhausen. I chose this due to the sheer utility of the game that because they've added to it over time, because there's a lot of different decisions you can make on the, well, am I going to start building up boatmen or am I going to start doing a building strategy or am I going to get a whole bunch of knights so I can take a lot of actions or am I going to early on start culling out my pieces to the beneficial deeds board? Man, there's a lot of ways you can play each game. And when you start adding to that expansions, like the trade and intrigue expansion that changes up how you play completely, I think this is a game that has a lot of replayability and is one that's been a surefire hit every time it's come to the table. So I think people like it because they always feel like they're doing something interesting and productive on every turn. That puzzle on how do you sort out the chits that you draw to try to get more chits and to do things on the board. That puzzle is interesting every time. And I think it does a great job of not overstaying its welcome. Like it's a fixed number of rounds. The rounds are mostly simultaneous. And it plays out pretty reliably in 90 minutes to 120 minutes. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the point with the Desert Island. Maybe it's not the best games. I'm pretty sure I could like think the most ideal games to have here. But at a certain point in time, you just have to have the games you like. You know? Yep, yeah, and exactly. You said about that, right? If you were to get rid of games, which ones would you buy? Probably the ones you like. You know, it's not going to always be the ones that you really want that have the most vast appeal and the most different to everybody else in your game group. Just by the things you like. And Orleans is definitely one I could see you just liking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and likewise, too. The if, you're, if I were calling my collections, these would be the last ones to go. For sure. <laughs> my last one is maybe the weirder one. I decided Crokinole would be a good one. It's a great way to pass the time. You can get tournament level on it. It's really competitive, so it kind of feels a little more sportsy than the other board games, which I thought could maybe be a good thing. And it's just one of those games. Everybody has fun when they play it. I play it all the time. Probably doesn't work out too well because how would I have a crokinole board on a desert island or if I'm traveling somewhere? Why would I keep like the biggest thing that I own in my game collection outside of the shelf? But <laughs> now, would you take that as carry on, Jake? I don't know. I don't know. I'd do it. Maybe I'm in, like in the car. And then <laughs> the other way I tried to do this is uh, when we said that we'd like live in our van for a while or something along those lines. Definitely would bring a crokinole board. It's way too big. It's just a big thing. <laughs> Honey, where'd you put the frying pan? Oh, it's on top of Gloomhaven. Yeah, <laughs> don't worry about it. Yes, yeah, so, <laughs> crokinole, it's fun. Everybody should try it. Try to try it before you buy it. But it's just an amazing game. Jake, I got a present I'm going to bring you one. We, we got a few things. We're doing a little horse trading on some games and so forth. And I got something I'm going to bring you. Oh, a little gliss powder, my man. I'm going to bring you some gliss powder and and I'm going to bring you some carnuba wax. Wee. It will be a new game, Jake. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing is I'm debating on buying a nicer board. Might be something I like ask for for Christmas or something along those lines. It just seems like something a little bit too much to buy for myself. Just kind of out of the blue if I already have a board that works. So I'm excited to see what the blue list powder will do. Yeah, but I thousand percent guarantee you could pass that one down the road. There's somebody, (laughs) somebody would buy that for you for sure. Without a doubt. Great choice. I would seriously consider keeping mine as well as part of a short list on there. Absolutely. All right. My number seven is the game that got me into gaming that, again, I have played this one over and over and over and over again, and I can't seem to get sick of it. And I actually kind of had some new insight on it recently. I'm talking about the old Sid Saxon 3M game classic Acquire. Jake, it suddenly dawned on me that this is actually kind of a proto cube rails game. OK, I've still yet to play this game. So you're you're speaking. You, oh, ah! I know. <laughs> Oh, holy cow. Okay. Mind blown. 
what you're doing is you're building up chains of hotels instead of railroads, and you're buying shares in those. And when you start a location, you get an extra share of whatever you want, which no, actually, you get an extra share of what it is that you started. So it's got that director share kind of thing going on. I suddenly realized that really, this is a proto 18xx proto cube rail game. And it never, I never saw it in that light before. Now, there's a randomness in it that isn't inherent in those other games because you're just drawing what tiles you get to lay. Right. But having said that, there's a lot of underpinnings in a lot of games that come along later. And there's a lot of tense decisions on what stocks do I invest in? How much value am I going to get back out of those things? Do I grow this up and merge it or do I try to make it survive and just grow and get value that way? And there's also a lot of interaction because, you know, you get to a point where there are majority shareholder bonuses paid out at the end of the game. And you really got to watch like a hawk on who buys what, because what shares you have is hidden information. So you think you're in the lead on something, but you're not absolutely sure until the end of the game. I think that the best thing that is an island game would be that by cutting down our collections, I would actually play this game sometime. <laughs> I got it's, it's always been one that I've looked at and you can buy it at like garage sales for like two dollars. I mean, you can get kind yep. of the game for nothing. There have been fancier, newer, modern versions of this one that have come out at infinitum over the past 40 years or since it's been released. 50 years. I think this came out in the 60s. Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah, this game's over 50 years old. So I still think the the one to have is the 3M games version of it. The bookshelf version with the Bakelite tiles and the only upgrade you need for it is a set of Scrabble tile holders to mm-hmm. stuff into the box, which really don't fit. But that's the perfect version to have. And that can be had all day long for 15 bucks on eBay. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, I, I need to try this game, man. I think I'm going to really like it. And you guys played it right before COVID happened, right? Those, this is probably one of the last yeah. we played in person. One of the very last game nights we had, we pulled it out and played a quick game of it. Another real plus for this game, it's short. A full mm-hmm. game of this is an hour. And they're all the same, you know, it's kind of like the same thing. They're all an hour and a half. Sometimes just being fast, you know, it's nice. Right. I think a lot of the choices were by games that just didn't have a lot of friction involved getting them played. Absolutely. That totally fits. I have to try this game. At least I hope it fits, but. I can't believe you would not like this game. No, I'm sure I would. It's just, it's just a matter of time before I actually play it. For sure. So that's my number seven choice, Agricola. Now we actually made it a 15 list, but in the interest of time, we're not going to talk at length about all of those. Those were the ones that we specifically wanted to bring up. But we actually all have some honorable mentions. And Jake, I don't think we got to do this completely religiously list style. If you want to say a sentence or two about each one of these things, uh, indulge yourself. Go right ahead. All right. So my honorable mention list, first off, Azul. I already mentioned that. Uh, My second honorable mention is Codex. Why Codex? Well, I played a lot of Magic in my life, and this is a kind of a Magic in a Box. It's a card battle game with a lot of replayability and depth, and one that I think if I ever want to do a two-player game that I can just battle through. Next up, Innovation. Clever game with crazy combos. No one game seems like the one before it. Probably best at two players, but also if you want full-on crazy, play it with more players, because it'll bring the crazy. There's definitely a learning curve that rewards you learning the strategies. I included 1849. We already talked about that one, mainly because it's an incremental cap game and you went with a full cap game. Eh, Just something different. I also think it's the best design map of any 18xx out there. Next up, Lahav. Uwe Rosenberg's one of my favorite designers. I really flip-flop back and forth between that and Agricola. I went with Lahav. It's very hard to perfect your play in this game and lots of replayability. I included Tichu for all the reasons we discussed before. I included Great Western Trail because it's a great Euro. Lots of ways to win, hard to master. We've played it multiple times and we're still screwing it up, meaning that there's a lot of fruit left on that tree still. So 
I, and it's a game that, again, it's got an approachable theme and virtually everybody in our game group enjoys this one. So there's very low friction to get that one played. And finally, my last choice on the list is a bit of a flyer, but I included Pax Perfuriana on there. This is definitely the gnarliest, chewiest one in the bunch. It's, but it's got deep, 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 deep card play, tons of interaction. But I think it's kind of the easiest one to get up and rolling on because it's got the least amount of Phil Eklund jargon embedded yeah, into it. makes it. sense. Go there. Do the thing. You know, it says it more yes. in plain English. It's pretty obvious on how to play. This might flip-flop to transhumanity with more plays, but at the moment I'm on Team Perfuriana. There's so many levers to pull to win in this game and stop others from winning and just massive interactivity, great theme. And I, I couldn't make a list without including a PAX game. So I'll do mine, starting off with the same thing. I did PAX, one of the PAXs. I don't know which one, probably will depend on the day. I think Porfiriana is a good example for all the reasons you listed, but I could also see Pamir being here. I could also see Transhumanity being here. I don't know. I could also even see Renaissance too, and I actually circle back to that game at some point in time. For sure. But I, I, I couldn't choose each which one, and that's actually probably the real reason it's not one of the one of the seven I want to talk about. I'll split Chicago Express on here. Really great auction slash train cube rails game. Um, it's probably my favorite in the genre. Love what this game has to offer. Did container for all the same reasons you said about raw. It's just a great auction game, and I didn't really have one. Even though I do think container might get a little bit worn out if you play it a lot, a lot, a lot. I brought Food Chain Magnet. That game has a million things you can do, especially if you include the expansion in it, which I do not have, but I'd probably buy if I was going to a desert island. Brought Indonesia. That's probably the least replayable game of all of them, but I just, I love Indonesia. It's a, it's a game I love. Thought about Bus as well, another splatter game, kind of chessy in that kind of way. Played it a lot, plays well at different player counts, and it's just tight, 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 which could be really fun. Um, could see like tournament level metas developing with a certain group with that. Thought about Great Russian Trail for all the same reasons you mentioned. It's probably one of my favorite Euros, if not my favorite Euro. And then finally, Concordia as well. Plays really well with a bunch of different people. I just didn't think if I was on a desert island, I would really want to make sure that I had like a midweight to light Euro. Like I'd play Azul mm-hmm. with normal, normal people and didn't think I really need to explain Concordia, even though it's a great game. It's just a little bit too heavy for complete newbies and a little bit too light for being the only desert island thing I do. So. But I still would love it if I had 15 games. So Concordia's on there. That is an amazing list. And boy, you know, taking those 30, well, probably 25 with overlaps games, you could play a lifetime and never get bored of those games. So without a doubt. (laughs) Anyway, those are our choices. We'd love to hear what your choices are. Pop on by our guild on Board Game Geek, which you can find by looking up gaming moguls on the guilds on Board Game Geek or listen to the end to hear what our (laughs) actual guild number is or just pop in and interact with us online. We're available on Instagram and Twitter and all kinds of other places. And what are your desert island games and why? Absolutely. This was really fun to do, and it was a great thing to do with COVID. Just kind of evaluating why we have all these things, you know, <laughs> sitting behind me with a million different boxes of stuff that I'm not really using right now. You know, it was much harder to do than I actually thought of when I came up with this idea that, oh, this would be simple. then. <laughs> Trying to separate out the what are the 20 games I'd actually keep versus my 20 favorite games and realizing how different those selections actually were right. really made it a tough challenge. Right, completely. So, yeah, well, it was a great talking to you, bud. I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thank you very much. You as well. And uh, get out there and play some games, kids, and we'll talk to you soon. We're the Gaming Moguls. I'm Mark. And I'm Jake. Good night, everybody. This has been the Gaming Moguls Podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klopfenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. 
feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Gaming Moguls. Or reach us via email, jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening.